Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with London-based producer and band brainchild of Us Three, Jeff Wilkinson. The band was formed in 1992 alongside with production partner Mel Simpson. Ultimately, Us Three rose from the ashes of two previous incarnations. Their name was inspired by the Horless Parlum album Us Three, produced by Alfred Lyon, who is the founder of Blue Note Records. Two years after they released Cantaloupe, it hit the U.S. Top 10. That album was Hand on the Torch, and it was a global phenomenon, along with being the first Blue Note album ever to achieve platinum status in the USA. He opened up about the band, his life these days, and so much more, and he once said, if jazz is the first way, hip-hop is the second way, then us three is the third way. Enjoy this interview. Hey, thank you for taking a minute out today. I really appreciate it. No problem. Talk to me a little bit about what's been going on lately. We, we've been going through quite a time with COVID, and I'm curious how everything's been going for you. Well, it didn't really change my life that much, to be honest, because um, when I finished the band, I had a studio built in my back garden, became a kind of media composer, really, where I've been writing a lot of music in a vast range of different styles for a variety of production music companies around the world. So I just work on my own. I've become completely self-sufficient <laughs> uh, just in my little studio. Uh, if anything, I became more productive because there was less outside influence, less distractions, if you like, when COVID hit. So I'm just in my little studio all day making music. That's it. Let's get into the history. How did the band come about? How you're the brainchild? How did all of this begin? It's 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 it was such an interesting fusion of genres coming together. How did you come up with this? My partner Mel and myself uh, began working together as we met uh, in a studio that he owned that I was working in with someone else doing a similar kind of jazzy hip hop thing. Uh, that sort of fell apart with the other guy and then I decided, well Mel said to me, what are you, you going to do now this is falling apart so uh, we decided to do some work together. The first thing we did I pressed up um, like literally 500 white label 12 inches and sort of carried them around the record shops in, in London and sold them like that and that featured an English rapper and jazz pianist called Jessica Lauren and that goes to the attention of a kind of fledgling independent label as it was then called Ninja Tune which is a huge independent label now and uh, we got a deal to do a single with them which came out in the name of NW1 which is actually the postcode for Camden where both Mel and I lived at the time. That was called The Band Played the Boogie, and that really was a template for what became Us Three. I was already, I'd already been working as a jazz DJ, and uh, we sampled Grant Green's version of Sucky Sucky, which was a kind of really big tune on that jazz dance scene uh, in London, and put a rap on it by an English rapper and a sax player called Ed Jones, who He's actually the only musician who played on every Us Three album. Ed's a really good friend, but he was right, right there at the beginning before Us Three even started. And it was that that got, got us to the attention of Blue Note, really. They literally 
heard it being played on the radio in London, and I got called into a meeting with an A&R guy who was a kind of satellite A&R guy for Capitol Records, who, who, owned, who owned Blue Note before it was all bought out. And went to see them, went and not knowing if they were going to sue us because I knew that the sample hadn't been cleared by the label or if he liked it. But when the guy opened the door, he was smiling. So it was all good. So I had a real kind of seize the day moment in the first meeting that I ever had with the A&R guy and uh, suggested to him that they let us use the Blue Note Back Catalogue as a sampling resource to create the ultimate fusion of jazz and hip-hop, which is exactly what I said to him at the time. It was a bit of a risk asking for it. <laughs> but yeah. if, you don't, if you don't ask, you don't get to you. Right. And uh, I think he was intrigued by it. They didn't say yes immediately, obviously. He went away and spoke to Bruce Lundvall, who was the president of Blue Note, who became a huge friend and massively influential in the Hall of Street story. And they agreed to give us some money to do some demos. Uh, this was in early 1992. So we did a, two demos in March 1992, one of which was Cantaloupe, and the other one didn't even make it onto the album. <laughs> so we kind of got one right and one wrong. But yes, Cantaloupe, so Cantaloupe was a bit of a sleeper, to be honest, because it was exactly two years Two years later, in March 1994, it was in the top 10 in America. But we'd actually done the demo in March 1992, and the, the demo version didn't really change that much to the version that actually came out. In fact, the only thing that was different on it was the third verse. We got Rassan to rewrite the third verse, the rapper. You know, it took a long, for a long time before it was a hit. Two but, years. About once you got there... It seems like it once once it hit, it happened pretty fast. I know it took a couple of years, but during that period of going up, what was that like? It was gradual, really. wasn't You got to remember back in those days. This is before the internet, so at that time, record companies would routinely release things in different territories at different times which enabled you to go to those territories and do promotion there uh, and then go somewhere else when the release date was and do promotion there. So it actually came out first in Japan and Japan was the first place I went to in late 92. And again, Japan was massively important in the Hall of Three story because um, they just seemed to have a different appreciation of jazz there and uh, it really took off there. So we'd already kind of been over to Japan. The album and the single were already out in Japan uh, in 1993 and in Europe in summer 1993. And we put the band together and toured around in 1993 as well. So when it came to America, we kind of hit the ground running a bit, really. The only reason that it got delayed in America was because of the internal personnel changes within the parent company, Capital Records. That's what held it up. I must admit, I was a bit worried at the time because, you know, we weren't the only p people who were kind of fusing jazz and hip-hop and experimenting with that at the time. There were things like Guru's Jazz and Taz and The Diggable Planets. And we kind of came out before them in Europe and Japan 
but we came out after them in America. And I was a bit worried that we may have missed the boat, but that wasn't the case. And things, like you said, things did take off pretty rapidly in America. What was the most enjoyable part of being involved with us three? What What did you enjoy the most about the band and about what you did with them? I think the traveling was amazing. That's the traveling around and the gigs were incredible. I mean, we had no intention of having a live band, to be honest, to start with. It was, you know, the album was made by two guys in the basement studio with a bunch of records and CDs and samples, samplers and computers and, you know, bringing different musicians, different rappers in at the time. And it never even occurred to us to do it live until there was a demand for it. Then when we, the initial versions of us three live were quite different as to how it evolved. So it was a bit of an experiment at first, putting the band together. But then by the, again, by the time we got to America, we got it all sorted out really. And it was kind of a bit of a, more of a streamlined operation. But yeah, the traveling, I mean, us three took, took me, I've been all around Europe, I've been to Japan 20 times, I've been to Russia, I've stood on the Great Wall of China, we played there, we played in Brazil, obviously all across America as well. I mean, it was just, it was a whirlwind, it really was a whirlwind. You know, this came out in 92, you said it took a little time to gain steam, but I'm curious... Do you think you could have pulled it off in 2022? Do you think the world would have been as receptive as they were back in 92? I have no idea. I mean, things are of their time, aren't they? So it's impossible to answer that question because a lot of things have happened in between times. So, you know, there are other people who are, who are sampling the Blue Nut Back catalog now and doing it in a different way. I don't know. So if we go back in your lineage, what brought you into the world of jazz? Who, who were some musicians and how did jazz become a focal point for you? Initially, I think it was probably my older brother who, who I would hear things like Art Blake in the Jazz Messengers coming out of his bedroom when I was a teenager and didn't like it at the time. I just thought it was a noise. <laughs> uh, the things that I was into at the time, I was into David Bowie. Curiously enough, Probably the first time I ever really heard a proper jazz pianist was probably Mike Garson, who played on Bowie's Aladdin Sane album, who's a phenomenal pianist, who I actually got to see a couple of years ago. Um, since Bowie died, he's been kind of touring and playing um, uh, gigs with various other musicians, playing some Bowie stuff and some of his own material. And I saw him at a very small intimate gig in London when he was talking about his experience, which was amazing. And he's written a great book about it as well. But his playing on Aladdin Satan is pretty out there, to be honest. And I, I obviously didn't know what I was listening to as a teenager, but something must have connected, I think. During the time with us three, you know, there was, you got a lot of recognition. You went all over the world. I'm curious. What was the most surprising recognition that you got? Something that just you didn't expect that the band received over the years? Probably the, one of the most amazing experiences that I had was meeting Quincy Jones at Montreux Jazz Festival in summer 1993 in Switzerland. 
he was one of the producers of the festival and I just physically bumped into him going around the corner backstage he kind of went off to the left into an office there which was obviously his office and I just thought I've got to go in and talk to him it's Quincy Jones so I knocked on the door and introduced myself and uh, when I said I'm with us with three he just stuck his hand out, shook my hand and said, wow, great album, man. And that was like, I felt like I could go home. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. That's it. It was like praise from the gods kind of to get that from Quincy. That was amazing. The other thing I'm curious about is, you know, in your life as the brainchild of this band and just in general with your capacity of, of the large body of work that you've done over the years, if you have a dream tonight, and you run into the younger version of yourself, say, early on in your 20s, and you could give yourself a piece of advice based on everything you've learned, the wisdom you've accumulated over all these years, what would you tell your younger version? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I don't really care much for the music business, the business as a whole. In the first 10 years of us three, we only managed to get three albums out just because of the absolute nonsense I had to deal with with various record companies, personnel changes and things. And it was after that that I managed to wriggle free of the label that I was with after 10 years and went independent. And then over the next 10 years, managed to put out six albums, twice as many, and still carry on touring around the world. I would say try and go independent quicker. You know, if I had any advice for any younger musician now, I would say don't get involved with major labels. They can make you really successful, but you can get very stuck with them as well. So in your capacity of, of liking jazz and other genres, I'm curious if you have, we get off the phone, uh, a DeLorean pulls up that's a time machine in front of your house, and you can go anywhere in time and see any band or act. Where are you going? Who are you going to see? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I would definitely go back to the sort of early to mid sixties. I think that that classic blue note kind of hard box or jazz kind of sound at the time, that's really my bag. That's where I would go to see a lot of the bands live then, people like Art Blake and the Jazz Messengers and Horace Silver. Um, you know, that would yeah, I would definitely go there. What's what is there one album for you that you always go back to? One of your favorite albums that you're like, man, this is it. This is the stuff that you would you would you historically go back and listen to. That's one of your favorites ever. Oh well, there's a lot really. I don't know if there's well, that would be too hard to to choose one. I, I know I've said before, Pat Metheny's still life talking album came out in the eighties, which I absolutely loved at the time, and it's probably one of my most played albums that's probably a bit unexpected but it's a really nice kind of chill out album that's always been a good escape for me that album you know it's interesting it's almost as though pat metheny i'm either following him or he's following me at the beginning of this pandemic i moved to his hometown of lee summit missouri and every interview there's something that always comes up about pat metheny <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't want to ask you about Us Three, your favorite album, because those kinds of things don't tend to be very fair, and I know it's hard to choose your favorite. So let me try to reframe this question in a way that's that's justifiable. And I guess 
What was a period of the band that you look back on and think, man, we really grew or we were hitting it or we were at our epic, epic stride at this point? Okay, no, okay. that's well put. Yeah, well, 2006 with a, a schizophrenic album. Um, we did a fantastic tour in 2005. We hadn't toured for a couple of years. Uh, and when we went out in 2005 touring the Questions album, that was a really long tour. It was really good. And I put together a band then that became what I always called the Eight Team. So as soon as we finished that, that tour uh, in the autumn of that year, I pulled them all in the studio. And I think Schizophonic was a really vibey album because it was made on the back of that tour. And the two rappers on there, Akil and Gaston, who I'd found um, through a guy called Rocky, who used to organize gigs at the New Eureka Poets Cafe in New York. Um, they were great. They were, had a real spark between them. Uh, they were both very accomplished live performers before they even joined us three. So when we got on stage with the band and them, um, that was fantastic. That was really exciting. You know, for the purposes of my show being jazz, I'm curious, why do you love jazz? Just a simple question, why do you love it? Oh, wow, it's just exciting. It's kind of the ultimate kind of magpie music, really, isn't it? It's, uh, I, I think there's no such thing as pure jazz. It's a sort of jazz Jazz is sort of music that borrows liberally from other forms of music and uh, twists and turns and is ever-changing, and that's what's exciting about it. I love that answer, man. And that really wraps up what you have done with what you created with us three. I'm going to ask this from a band standpoint, and then I'm going to ask this from you as a person, Jeff. So as a band, everybody had a perception of what us three was. There was the... There was, there was just this global perception of the outfit, what we thought it was. But at the end of the day, what was the band? What would people be surprised to know that went to the core, went to the soul, the bones of what this band and, and what it really was? Okay, yeah, it was always my intention right from the word go to try and create something that was 50% jazz and 50% hip-hop. That's all I was trying to do. I was trying to balance it. I think there was... I think the way that us three did it was different to the way a lot of hip hop producers who were kind of flirting with jazz at the time did it because they were kind of more influenced by the kind of seventies jazz funk stuff. But I think that what we did was take music that, that wasn't, it was inherently funky, but it wasn't funk. You know, the early 60s stuff, this is before um, funk had been used to describe music, really. But we kind of funked it up. And I think that was different. I still think, I still think, even since then, that nobody's done that, really. So I think we were unique in that way. I would say so. So as Jeff Wilkinson, as the person, everyone has a perception of you, who they think you are, but ultimately, you live your life. Who do you think you are? What's your perception of you? I actually like loads of different types of music, um, all kinds of stuff. I listen to all kinds of stuff. And with us three, I didn't always get a chance to express that. You know, one of the weird things that happened to me in COVID 
uh, during the lockdown when that was happening a couple of years ago was that I started listening to loads of electronic music, kind of going really back to things like Tangerine Dream. And then I started making music like that as well. And I've made quite a number of albums of library music in that kind of vein, which I really like doing. Um, I'm kind of quite intrigued by the idea of doing uh, more music to picture. I think that's something I'd really like to get into doing. So I'm just sort of, I've always been kind of inquisitive about music. I like different things. I like fusions of things. I think that's that's always what I was trying to do is keep, bring other elements in, elements of either Indian music, Latin music or whatever. Uh, things I was listening to at the time, I tried to incorporate in each of three albums, tried to do something different on each album. And I've still kind of got that inquisitive nature about listening to music. You know, the one thing I see with music coming from America is that London is always the trendsetter. America always tends to take from the innovations that happen. And I really believe what you created from where you're at in London had to do with the culture of that scene. Do you ever think about that? Is that something that's new to you? And and how do you feel hearing that, that, that London is this hotbed of innovation that really bore the sound that you came up with and a lot of innovative sounds that we hear in music. Yeah, I think a journalist once came up with a with a, um, an answer to why that is so. Really, uh, who was an English journalist who I know quite well. He said to me that because uh, the UK is an island, so we have a kind of island mentality, really, and we treat music, we treat all kinds of music the same. What we don't have what we didn't have in the terms of in the context of fusing jazz and hip-hop together he said that we don't have the kind of socio-economic baggage the history of the music the struggle that went on in making those both types of music both jazz and hip-hop we just treat it as music we're like this have this kind of island mentality so we just get on with it kind of you know nothing stops us from there's no social boundaries or whatever that would stop us from working with different types of music. We're not, we wouldn't sort of think about running the risk of possibly offending someone uh, because we treat all music all the same. And it was a really interesting argument that he put forward, which I'd never thought of it like that. But having thought of it a lot since he explained that to me, I think there's an element of truth in that. I'm so glad you told me that. I've thought about this for a long time, and that's wonderful. That, that makes total sense. When you think about the heyday, the height of us three, do you miss that traveling and the exposure and all of that? Is there is there any element of that fame that you miss or that? <laughs> yeah, I get asked that a lot, and the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> I think because because I did it because we actually lived through it. You know, it was. It was crazy. There was like an 18 month period when it was really crazy. It was, you know, just traveling constantly all over the world. And it, while it was great to go through it, um, it was enough. You know, I don't really miss the traveling and everything now. It was lovely to do it then, but it's kind of almost 30 years later now. So 
I don't want to do it now. I dig it. Yeah, that's a very wise answer. Um, I probably should have asked this up front, but since I my brain kind of works like a, a jazz improv set, how did the name Us Three come about? How did you land on that? Oh, that's a, uh, well, it's obviously the name of the Horace Parlin album that's on Blue Note. It just seemed to fit, really. We went through lots of different ideas for names right at the start. And uh, there was the fact that there was kind of three elements to us, three music seemed to fit really nicely because there was the sort of, there was the samples of the, of the older jazz stuff. Um, there was the uh, new, younger jazz musicians that we always had younger cats playing on top. And then there was a the hip hop element with the beats and the rap as well. So it was kind of like we were acknowledging the past of what had gone before. We were looking forward to the future with the younger musicians that we had on as well. But we were rooted in the present, having the hip hop element. So it was like past, future and present all meeting together. That was the concept. And that makes perfect sense. That's a perfect fusion. Jeff, man, hey, thank you for taking some time out. Thank you for for the music you've given to the world, and I appreciate your time today. Hey, thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in London, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.